0: Exodus 37, 1 through 9 is our focus this morning, and I'll ask you this question before we read it. If you were to describe the essence of God, describe the heart of God, what is at the core of God, what one word would you use? If you have studied Exodus very long with us, you know that answer has been given, Uh, We studied it uh, several chapters earlier, and we've mentioned it quite often. But just in case you miss it or you have forgotten it, as I often do, what characterizes God, we come to it today, and God demonstrates that He was so insistent that His people realize who He was in the core of His being, that He had a piece of furniture crafted that would bear in the holiest of holy places the testimony to who he is. Chapter 37 verses 1 through 9, Bezalel, and Bezalel and Aholiab were the two artisans who crafted uh, the uh, furniture of the tabernacle, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood, two cubits And a half was its length, a cubit, and a half its breadth, and a cubit, and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its feet, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles under the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half was its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold, he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end, one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out Their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see in this simple, visual artifact that you crafted for the temple, help us to see Jesus in whose name we pray. God's people said together, amen. When I lived in St. Louis, it was difficult to get a license renewal or a tag renewal or a title in the particular place, the particular area of St. Louis where I lived. It It was difficult difficult because uh, that uh, that uh, agency was was run by three very very capable women who had been at their job for a long time they were matriarchal women they ran that place with an iron fist they took it very seriously and uh, when, you, when you went into the, the, the building, it, it was something like there's a room, and, and you go in like you do in a lot of places. There's a, there's a machine there or a, a dispenser, and you strip off a tag. It has a number on it. It tells you when you're going to be called forward. But when you go in there and take your number, you look toward the end and you look toward the end and there were those three judges really sitting up at a high bench on a dais and it could not have been more intimidating than the Supreme Court itself and uh, the, the place itself was was silent it was as quiet as a library because everybody was listening keenly to what documents were being required and they were they were precise and complete and odd uh, you know where is your original birth certificate where is the the dna sample from your grandfather on your mother's side and and people were constantly being rejected you you heard these horrifying words a word really when someone didn't have the right document next and the person would slink out the back and if anybody argued with these judges there was a picture of the governor behind them and they just pointed with a thumb In in effect, saying, take it up with the governor. We're just his representative. He's the one who makes the demands. That's what authorities can do. When someone is an authority, like the governor over the license bureau, or God over humankind, they make demands. We can't argue with them. God says to us in this ark that he makes demands and we must meet them. He declares these demands by means of his attributes. He reveals his attributes and and when we learn what his attributes are, we are beholden to keep them. That is if they're in theology, we call them communicable attributes. You can't keep his incommunicable attributes, like his omnipresent, being everywhere present. But his communicable attributes, those communicable attributes, those things that can be imitated, when you find them in God, you, you're obligated to, to meet them, to imitate them. Now, God crafted the ark and put it in the center, in the holiest place of the Holy of Holies. And he crafted it so that it would be a visual reminder to the priests and then others who would observe it through the centuries. He, he was a visual reminder of his attributes. And uh, because this is such an important study today, I, I'm going to announce to you that I found the Ark of the Covenant. It was not in the Smithsonian where Indiana Jones put it. It was in Sandy Wilson's office. Sandy has been hiding the Ark of the Covenant all these years. No, really, this is made by Amanda Coop, my sister. I said, I just need a box with some things on the top of it, and then she, she went above and beyond. Here, This is archival quality. We'll probably put it in history hall. But I want you to see this. I want you to appreciate what God was teaching his people and what he was preparing them for in the Christ we have received. So the Ark of the Covenant was, was oblong. It was f- uh, f- roughly four feet long, measured in cubits, that's 18 inches. But four feet long, two feet wide, two feet high. It was plated with gold on the outside and on the inside. The lid on the Ark is called the mercy seat. On top of the mercy seat are these two angels, cherubs, plural cherubim, with their wings stretched forward, their faces down toward the mercy seat, rings on the side through which staves were to be passed, sticks for carrying it because no one could touch it and live. And then inside the ark, we're told in the rest of Scripture, were some other things. There was a jar of manna, like we read about in Exodus 16. There was Aaron's staff blooming. will talk about that later. And two copies of the commandments. All of these in the Ark of the Covenant covered with the mercy seat sat atop by or seated atop being the cherubim. Now what does it teach us? It teaches us for one, God is holy. Gold is a symbol of perfection throughout Scripture. Christ is is that one who is uh, holy in the in the New Testament and with a sash of gold. Gold is perfection. God is holy. In His holiness, He is a consuming fire. He cannot tolerate any sin in His presence. It was evidenced in that. But it's strange story in the Old Testament where the ark is being transported from Philistia, from Philistia where it had been taken captive and, and it was being returned to Jerusalem and, and, and David is leading the way and God had told his priest and his people over and over again, this is a symbol of my holiness. If anyone touches this ark they will be killed. It was on the back of an oxen cart and the oxen, an ox stumbled The cart jostled and Uzzah, one of the priests, reached out his hand, didn't grab the pole, but rather touched the ark and he was killed immediately. David complained about that, but in effect God said, I make the requirements. I'm holy. And because God is holy, he says in his word, I am holy therefore be holy. Leviticus 19. Jesus repeated the same thing in the In the Sermon on the Mount, be you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God is holy. You must be holy. Then I said in the ark was placed this jar of manna. Remember in Exodus 16 when we studied the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and they didn't know what they were going to eat. And God said, I'll rain down bread from heaven. We'll call it manna. It'll be sweet to the taste. And God gave them what they needed every day, twice as much to get them through the Sabbath day. And he said, I want you to remember my faithfulness. You'll be tempted to forget it. So I want you to take a jar, of an omer of manna. I want you to fill it. And I'm going to preserve it for the next 40 years so that every time you look at it, If you regularly know that it's in the ark, it's in the central part of the tabernacle, I want you to be reminded of my faithfulness. Similar thing happens when we come into the church building. We sit in the places where God has met us time and again. We're reminded of that. We come to the Lord's Supper. We're reminded of how God has assured us in the past. We're reminded of where we knelt and He assured us of of His forgiveness. We see these shields of covenant of the covenant all around our balcony. We see the cross and it reminds us that God is faithful and from all eternity, from all creation to now and and beyond to the celestial city, into into heaven he will faithfully preserve us with his love God is faithful we must be faithful Samuel said as much to his people as he was dying he said fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you be faithful in response to the faithful grace of Jesus Christ. And then he revealed in this ark that he is sovereign. He revealed it by the way he, uh, way it's crafted, the cherubim are on the top of it and, and throughout Scripture God is said to be enthroned above the cherubim. The, the, the ark was, was used, it was at the head of the army of Israel as they went into the promised land and God conquered as he symbolically accompanied them with the presence of the ark. And And then there's this strange story about Aaron in, in Numbers 16 and 17, Korah and a handful of other people rose up in rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Moses is the prophetic leader and Aaron is the priestly leader. And these uh, people said, hey, we represent the whole congregation and we're tired of your leadership. We want you gone, Moses. We want you gone, Aaron. Moses and Aaron took a step back and said, well, let God judge. And God opened up the earth and swallowed them. And then he said, I'm going to reinforce that this is my leader. I want you particularly to know that Aaron is my priestly leader. So I want all the chiefs of the tribes to come forward with their walking sticks, with their, with their staffs, symbol of their authority. And I want you to to I'm going I'm to put them in the tabernacle. And overnight, whichever one comes alive, whichever one blooms, That's going to be the indication that that is my priest. Only Aaron's budded, bloomed, and bore ripe almonds. Aaron was revealed to be the priest, but not so that he could rule in a high-handed way. He was revealed to be the priest, as God says in number 17, in number 18, he says to Aaron and his sons, the reason I have appointed you to be priests is so that you could bear the sins of these people. So God's sovereignty is revealed as His sovereign grace. His power, His authority is used to bring redemption. What's the lesson for us? Whatever influence, whatever power, whatever leadership we are given, it is to be servant leadership for the sake of bringing redemption. God is holy, we must be holy. God is faithful, we must be faithful. God is sovereign, we must, and uses His sovereignty, For redemptive purposes, we must serve redemptive purposes with whatever leadership opportunities we've been given. Those are important attributes of God. They are important lessons for us to learn. But the central lesson of this arc was to reveal to us ultimately the core of God's being. It's found between his justice and his mercy. God reveals himself as just. How does he do it? By putting these two tablets of the law in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments. Not He didn't need two because you needed five on one and five on the other. These were two copies, it seems, uh, in, in keeping with traditional Sousan treaties that, that just like in contractual relationships we experience today. You're given a copy and the person that you're contracting with makes a, a copy. And so God wrote down his, his obligations and wrote down, we wrote down, or he wrote down for us what our obligations were. Effectively, that's what he's saying. I will, I will do this for you and you will do this in return. God describes his relationship to us as just. Sometimes it's translated righteous. But the same word is used over and over in Scripture to describe what is right, to define what is right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, God said to Abraham? Will not the Judge will not the judge of all the earth do justly? Will not the right one of all the universe do rightly? It's the same thing. It describes his being true to himself. So he says that he will, he will, uh, he will relate to us in such a way as to provide everything that we need, our salvation. Our life and breath and everything else, his justice in relationship to us is providing everything we need in order to thrive spiritually and physically. Describes that as righteousness, as a gift. We'll look at it again tonight from Habakkuk. And then he describes our relationship to him as also one of justice or Righteousness. When we are living rightly in response to his grace, we are said to be just and righteous. And then he says, but if you're going to imitate, you're called to imitate my just, my righteous relationship with you, and you are to imitate it not only in the way you relate to me, but in the way you relate to each other. There is in Scripture... Descriptions of what it means to live justly or righteously relative to all of the people around us. Now, there's a lot of confusion about justice in our world and in our culture. And unbiblical thinking, unbiblically thinking people, both outside the church and inside the church, have hijacked the concept of justice and filled it with uh, all kinds of meanings that don't entirely square with Scripture— so, it's important for us to talk about, to reclaim that word justice as it is defined in Scripture. That, that, that idea of righteousness. Because it doesn't fit cleanly into anybody's categories. It doesn't fit cleanly into one political party or another. It doesn't fit in cleanly into any political or social philosophy. It cuts against the grain of all of them. There are five characteristics of biblical justice as it relates to people, dealing with people. I'm very grateful for Tim Keller summarizing Alistair McIntyre's work on biblical justice. And uh, we've posted that uh, article on our website a a while back. Uh, Tim says that there are five characteristics of biblical justice. One is, that is justice in dealing with one another. It is voluntary sharing. It is uh, uh, extending dignity and equality to every person because every person is, a hum- is an image bearer of God. It is corporate responsibility, fourthly it is individual responsibility. And fifthly, it is advocacy for those who cannot speak for themselves or those who are the marginalized or all whom the Bible calls poor. Voluntary sharing, extending dignity and equality to every human being, corporate responsibility, individual responsibility, and advocacy. It's impossible to argue against those five characteristics because the Bible defines each of those things as justice that God requires now let me make it even simpler Jesus made it much simpler he summarized everything in the Ten Commandments and all of the law and the prophets he said with these two commandments love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself it's just that simple if you want to be justified before God this is what you do you love the Lord with every thought. You love the Lord with your greatest strength. You love the Lord with your entire soul and no divided heart. Love the Lord that way and you will be justified. You'll be just. That the second is necessary. He, Jesus said, it's like unto it. That means it is just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, now he could say, love your neighbor as God loves you. But he said, I'm going to make it even more accessible. I'm going to just say, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, how do we, how do we love ourselves? Here's the way I love myself. When we're emotionally balanced and psychologically uh, uh, thinking in the proper way, this is the way we tend to think about ourselves. It. It's the way I love myself. I always give myself the benefit of the doubt. I say, You know, I know I didn't intend to do that thing. I know, and I say, George, I know you didn't intend it. I give you the benefit of the doubt. I know you didn't mean to make that mistake. And then when I, when I think like Paul, Who am I? I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who shall set me free from the body of this death? When I am almost near despair over my sin, you know what I always do? I continue to love myself. I love myself despite my sin and offense. I think the best about myself. I I defend myself. I think you do too. God says, if you want to be in a just relationship with me, just love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor the way I love you. It's just that simple. You want to be justified? You want to be just? That's the requirement. We stand condemned, don't we? I want you to notice on the top of this box, it's not nearly as dramatic as it was in reality, but here's the representation of blood poured on the mercy seat. And once a year in the Day of Atonement, the priest was instructed, the high priest was instructed to take a goat and slit its throat and pour all of its blood on the top of this mercy seat, this lid that perfectly covers the ark. Why would God mess up such a beautiful box by pouring gallons upon gallons year after year of blood on it drying and caking, putrefied, attracting swarming flies. Why did God mess up this box? Because it reveals his determination to have a relationship with a sinful people, an unjust people people who are not only unjust before him, but unjust toward each other. His determination is expressed by his messing up this gold box with putrefied blood of an innocent victim so that when he looked down from judgment with his righteous anger, and saw us in relationship to the law. He could not see us in relationship to the law except by looking through the blood of an innocent victim, covering our guilt. To have a relationship with us, God had to insert mercy. And in doing so, he revealed just what he told Moses Moses said I want to see your essence I want to see who you are I want to see your core and he said here is who I am I am merciful I have compassion on whom I will I have compassion I have mercy on whom I have mercy you want to know me you must know in my core I am merciful and He kept doing it year after year after year to show that those blood that those those goats and those lambs could not provide the permanent covering that we needed they were only pointing toward the perfect and last lamb Jesus Christ whose righteous blood would atone for and cover all of our sins Jesus illustrated how we're to live in regard to this this truth with the two men who came to the temple and and one was a pharisee that is he was a he was a religious professional he was a he was a, a political uh, conservative. He was a he was he he was a, he was a leader of the Jewish people and in cahoots with the Roman authorities. And he said, looking at the tax collector who was next to him, he said, "I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I keep your rules. I'm a good person." And the tax collector couldn't lift his eyes up to heaven, but he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Why that order? Because he knew it from the ark, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, which one went down justified? Not the one who justified himself only the one who claimed the mercy of Christ. And remember we said every attribute demands a response. So if God is so gracious as to pursue us by putting mercy in between his judgment and us so that he could love us and have relationship with us, what is the application for us? Think about what we do with a box like this. We throw all kinds of demands in it. The only way you're going to relate to me, we say, is you've got to meet my, this is the way I identify. This is, this is the political party I identify with. This is the ethnicity I identify with. This is the socioeconomic level I identify with. You need to be above me or you need to be below me. I, this is, the, this is the, 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 the kind of neighbors I like. Uh, this is the way I like people to speak to me, the way I like people to treat me. This is the way I like people to express themselves. We put that in the box and we say, now, if you meet those demands, I'll have a relationship with you. But every week we pray, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Lord, put your mercy, the mercy of your blood in between your judgment and me, even as I put mercy in between myself and everyone to whom I relate. Show me mercy as I show mercy. They will know you are my disciples. Yes, by the way, you love one another. And the love that is from God is the kind of love we experience in Jesus Christ that says, I am so determined to have a relationship with you I'm going to sacrifice my wants. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice myself in order to have a relationship with you. What are the barriers you have erected? They keep you from loving other people the way God loves you. it your prejudice is it our socioeconomic level is it our worship style is it our views of politics and the way the culture ought to go whatever it is what if God exacted the same standard from you Lord have mercy on me a sinner I visited that license bureau one occasion. There was a man sitting next to me who was nervously rifling through his papers to make sure he had everything that was required of him, and and he eventually found something that she was requiring that he didn't have, and so he quietly put his number aside and tried to slink out the back door and the the door creaked as he tried to make his exit and one of them looked up from her dais and she said where do you think you're going i just he was red-faced and i I left a, a document at home i'll be right back no you get back in here come right up here to the desk She made him put all of his papers on her desk and and she went through them. She found not just one missing, but a number of things missing. But miraculously, she found a way to provide every one of them. And she wouldn't let him go until she had put everything in his hand that would make him a licensed driver according to the standards of the governor of Missouri. She inserted herself between the governor and between him to provide him what he needed. It's not only an illustration of what Jesus has done for us and what he does for us. It's an illustration of what we must do for one another as his disciples. Now, the Old Testament priest, the high priest, when he emerged from making this sacrifice, he indicated to the people that it had been accepted by raising his hands and giving them the benediction, which I'll now do with you. Would you rise and stretch forth your hands and receive the Aaronic Benediction. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his countenance toward you and give you his peace now and forever. Amen.